So we're actually recording this on February 2nd, which happens to be Ayn Rand's birthday. Who was Ayn Rand and what motivated you to publish this book about her thought? Well, Ayn Rand was a novelist and philosopher, uh, author of Atlas Shrugged uh, and numerous other books, The Fountainhead, Virtue of Selfishness. What led us to write this book? Well, Alan and I and a lot of the other contributors had been um, students of and advocates for Rand's philosophy for, well, in Alan's case, decades. And we had noticed that there had been a lot more interest among journalists, historians, scholars of different sorts uh, in Rand. Even philosophers are teaching her a little bit more as usually a token egoist. And, of course, a lot said about her role in the culture in newspapers. But most of what you get is very shallow. And we thought there needed to be a as people are starting to recognize the need to engage with her a bit more, uh, people who didn't, you know, who she was in a major influence on themselves, we thought there needed to be a kind of quality reference volume to kind of help people wade into her corpus, to help people engage with her, uh, to give people coming from other disciplines or other ideological backgrounds just some context if they felt they should learn what she has to say and take her seriously. So uh, we got together some of the people that we thought knew the most about her, understood her ideas best. Uh, most of us are objectivists, or at least very sympathetic to Rand's philosophy. And we decided to put together a book where we would function as guides to her corpus, rather than as advocates, not trying to present or even teach the philosophy, but just showing people around, so to speak. And that's what The Companion is. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions about Rand, and even as somebody who was sympathetic to her ideas from the start, I often had difficulty really getting what she was saying or what she was arguing. And in your introductory essay, you discuss some of the challenging features of her ideas and writings. Can you talk just a little bit about what some of those are? Well, one of them is that she's a radical. She's outside of the mainstream in a lot of ways. One is that, uh, and this is particularly relevant for academic readers, she's not part of the academy. She's not part of the, um, you know, somebody who came up and was somebody's graduate student and publishes essays and so forth in, uh, in mainstream publications. But even more so, she's not part of the cultural mainstream in that she criticizes um, a lot of things that we are all brought up to take for granted, most notably altruism, uh, the moral code on which we are, by which we're taught to lead our, lead our lives and on which we're taught to base much of our self-esteem. And she criticizes very deep things about uh, government, art, just things that are endemic to our lives. So when you're dealing with somebody who's mounting that kind of a criticism, that kind of a deep criticism of so much that you take for granted, it's difficult. It's, there's something inherently combative about it, and uh, people tend to either uh, get very excited and, and gung-ho about it uh, if they, they find something they agree with in the criticism, and often they'll get too excited and too gung-ho in advance of their knowledge, or else they react defensively against it. And uh, it can be work to sort of process what are the arguments 
and uh, you know make an informed decision about them. Now, um, like you said, your book covers basically every major aspect of her philosophic thought, and I'm actually going to be doing a series of interviews following this one with uh, many of the authors. Uh, or contributors to the book covering everything from her metaphysics to her art. So with you today, though, I wanted to delve in an issue that you cover either as an author, co-author, editor in various ways, and that's her ethics. And I want to start here. The- well, actually, before we get into the ethics, could I, I just make one other point about the range of the book? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so it the book does cover all the areas of her philosophy, but it does a little more than that, and it was important to me that it, it do so. It's not just a book about her philosophy. It's a book about her works and thought, and that extends beyond philosophy. So there's a, a quite a bit in it about um, her literary approach, uh, and uh, that's woven in throughout the chapters on philosophy, but there are also some chapters, one chapter just on that. And also about her body of political commentary, so commentary on current events and cultural events. And neither of those things are things that you would cover just in a book about her philosophy. But because this is a kind of companion to her corpus, we thought it was important to have chapters on those subjects as well. Yeah, that's right. And there's also a, a really nice sketch uh, of her life by Shoshana Milgram. So it, it, it does give a lot more context. Um, but today we're going to focus on her uh, her ethics. And when most people talk about her ethics, they start with the fact that she was a champion of selfishness or a critic of altruism. But what I found interesting is that you actually don't start covering that issue or focusing on that issue until the final chapter in the section on ethics. So why is that? Well, there are two questions. I mean, one are why we have the chapters that we have. And another is why we ordered them the way that we did. And those were sort of separate decisions. Um, We have four chapters on ethics, or five if you count Daryl Wright, which is on society and the moral principles that govern society. Uh, The main one is uh, Alan Godhelf's chapter, uh, The Morality of Life. And that's the central chapter on Rand's Code of Ethics. There's also a chapter by Ankar Gatte on what's called moral psychology, her view of character and and uh, and free will. And those are what we thought of in planning the book as the main chapters on ethics. And they present, particularly Allen's, the structure of her moral theory. And there's a fair amount about egoism, I should say, in that chapter. But we thought that there, since people teaching her and people approaching her, are so often doing it through the lens of egoism and through knowing her for egoism, we thought there should be a shorter chapter just about egoism and altruism and uh, highlighting that aspect of her thought. The other chapter in ethics, though, which we decided to start with, uh, is a chapter on her view of valuing. And the reason that we started uh, with this chapter, and this is the one, the one that I wrote, is that It's a theme that's in her novels, and particularly her early novels, but running all the way through her later novels. The idea that some people are valuers, some people pursue values, and other people live in a different way that's not based upon values. And what I liked about starting with that is that that's a topic that uh, makes it easy to 
integrate together the way that she comes at these things in literature uh, with some of the really deep issues in her philosophy. And so I think it sets a tone for the book and sets a tone for thinking about her ethics in a way that uh, nicely brings in different aspects of her thought. Again, her literature, her essays. So that's why we started there. Uh, then the chapter, uh, the next chapter that's substantive on ethics is the kind of systematic presentation of her ethics by Allen. And again, there's a lot about egoism in that chapter and in the previous chapter. The chapter that's just on egoism and altruism by me was meant to assist somebody who's coming in looking for information on egoism because maybe they're going to teach her in a class where she's going to be the token egoist or for whatever reason they're coming in looking for that and the function of that chapter is to answer questions that people are going to have if they're comparing her to other egoists if they're thinking of her in terms of the egoist altruism debate and then to point to the other issues in the other chapters that the people will need to go to to understand those issues more deeply so let's then I, I do want to start by talking a little bit about the chapter on valuing, because uh, for me, when, when I first heard an earlier version of, of a course, but then rereading or reading this chapter now, I to me, it was one of the most illuminating things in terms of understanding how she approached moral issues. So you, can you say a little bit about what she means by valuing and how it could be that this is something a person has to learn to do or that not everybody does do? Yeah, one way to get into that is just to think about how it unfolded historically in her thinking, because I think this is, uh, I think it's something that she started with an observation about people. And it's an observation that I also had as a little kid, which is one reason that it fascinates me, that some people are, as she put it, valuers. They have some things that they care about. And, uh, you know, we have this expression, you're all about something. Um now, that's a little bit folksy, but there are some people, even as a kid, they were about this. You know, This one was into sailing, and this person had this thing, and there was something their lives were about that they cared about, and it mattered to them, and you could see that it mattered to them. Uh, and uh, they were passionate about it, whereas other people just seemed to you know, take everything easily. There was nothing that really inspired or was important to them. And this was something that Rand was really focused on from when she was, uh, at least the earliest writings we have of her in, in early America were about this. And what we know of her childhood also suggests that she was always very focused on this. There are the people who, something's important to them and, and people who that's just missing from. And as somebody who was a novelist who wanted to write exciting stories about dramatic people, right? you want people who really care about things. Also, she was really horrified by what people let happen to themselves and others in Russia, right, which went communist. And she, she thought that the lack of this caring about your own life and wanting to make something of it, the lack of this kind of passion uh, was part of what caused that. So I think this was a, a real issue for her particularly early on, thinking about what is the difference between the valuing people, the people who are after something, who feel passionately, and the people who are missing that. And I think maybe early on it was metaphorical when she talked about people knowing how to value versus not. But she had the idea 
that made it a little more than metaphorical from early on, that the valuers know how to put ideas together, that their lives are kind of integrated around what they're uh, going after. And so there's some kind of mental component of putting all the parts together and orienting, orienting yourself around the goal, coming up with a goal, coming up with a new idea and orienting yourself around it. And I think as we follow through her work, you know, across her career, starting with We the Living and looking then at the Fountainhead and that Atlas, we start to see more and more intellectual content to what that means. So if you look in the Fountainhead, there's a lot about um, anything that's properly created has a standard of selection and it has integrity because everything's selected around that standard. And there's a rational way of coming up with the standard. Uh, it's based on uh, certain needs, but you're not just trying to find a means to fulfill the need. You're coming up with a new creative idea, which is your goal, and there's a context for that goal. Uh, if you think about Rourke's central ideas for his buildings in the Fountainhead. And uh, so there's just a lot of thinking about what it is that the valuing, the people who are after something and, and, and have something that really matters to them, what the psychological and mental processes are that make that possible. And by the time you get to Atlas Shrugged, I think that has culminated in a theory of the foundations of ethics. And it's that trajectory from this early observation about two types of people to that theory in Atlas Shrugged that I'm tracing in this first chapter. Uh, that It's the third chapter of the book, but the first chapter that's really philosophy. So here's a question I might have trouble formulating, but I think it's related and it's something that I struggled to understand for a long time. And that's that Rand packs a lot to this idea of being rational. That is, it's not simply about identifying facts. You know, the sky is blue or Joe is a plumber. That a person can be rational or irrational in the realm of values. So that if a person decides to become a monk or a bank robber in her view, that, that's, that they're being irrational. But she also thinks that, that prior to her that there hadn't been a, a moral theory of reason. There hadn't been a rational morality defined. And I don't think she's saying that a would-be monk or robber should have discovered the objectivist ethics. And so th there's a sense in which she seems to be saying that a person just guided by normal intelligence and using his mind to the best of his ability would arrive at something resembling her ethical conclusions. And so I guess my question is how she would see that playing out. Like, what are the kinds of observations that a person would make just at a common sense level so that, um, you know, absent hearing an Ayn Rand lecture, they would see certain choices as being irrational or rational. Well, let me come at it from a, a somewhat different angle first. So for Rand to say she was the first to have had an objective moral theory, um, a parallel to that would be Aristotle being the first one to lay out the principles of logic. Uh, but that doesn't mean that nobody thought rationally or logically prior to Aristotle. It's just that Aristotle articulated the the principles, the kind of patterns, the, the what makes that kind of thought possible and enables people to live by it more consistently. That is to run their thinking by it more consistently. And that's also what I think Rand saw herself as doing with her ethics. So if you want to get a sense of of what it would be like for somebody to value rationally as opposed to irrationally prior to Rand's ethics and then what difference Rand's ethics is supposed to make to that. 
Well, she herself gives us fantastic examples of that because that's what happens in Atlas Shrugged. So if you look at characters like Hank Reardon or Dagny Taggart uh, or even Ken Daniger or Ellis Wyatt, right? These are people who, from her view, have rational values. They're valuing rationally. They might be making some mistakes along the way, and then, you know, if you read the novel, you find out that they are. But there are some people who are leading the types of the type of life that she thinks is, uh, in principle, the right type of life, and they're just making some mistakes about the application of it because they don't have the principles fully explicit, and they don't know fully how to apply them. So in this way, they're like people who can be relatively rational in their thinking, but haven't learned logic, and so they get tripped up in, in tricky arguments and so forth. And uh, what Rand is doing for such people in real life is what Galt is doing for them in the novel. That is, he's giving them explicitly uh, the code of values that they've always implicitly lived by. And so uh, one of the characters says that what Galt did for him is named what I'd always lived by. And I think that's what her ethics is doing. Now, what is it to be rational without an explicit moral code? Well, it's to not pursue things just because you feel an urge to go after them or a sense of guilt if you don't go after them. But it's rather to look out at the world and to observe the needs and abilities that human beings have and that you yourself have, including your psychological needs and abilities, and to figure out things that would use the abilities to satisfy the needs. And it would be to do it not just here and there on sporadic occasions, but to recognize that part of your need is that you need direction for your life as a whole, that you won't be happy or fulfilled if your life is a series of little episodes uh, pursuing this thing now and that other thing later, that it needs to, to add up to something. And so you might start off with several different goals that you pursue sporadically, you know, as a child. But as you grow older, you'll start to think, what do I want my life to be about as a whole? What's it going to mean? What's it going to add up to? You'll start to have longer term projects around which you build your life. And I think this is, in fact, how a lot of people do lead their lives, even people prior to are independent of reading Rand, certainly. Um, what she's doing is identifying uh, why that's the right way to live, what's good about it, and then helping you to do it more consistently. So then um, turning to her mature theory, I want to start by kind of summing up one popular way that I think a lot of people think about ethics and that is, so ethics in one way or another is a constraint and that left to our own devices, you know, we have these selfish urges that we're going to seek to gratify. And ethics is really about how do we tamp down on those urges so that we can, whether it's avoid God's wrath in the religious view or, you know, live together without a Hobbesian war of all against all in a more secular view. Um, it, it is some kind of constraint. And I think, you know, the, the book really captures that Rand rejects this view from its view of human nature to its view of the purpose of morality. And so maybe you can contrast her view with that kind of common outlook. Well, she doesn't think that we have automatic desires in the first place. At least, I mean, there are some kind of automatic feelings, pain, you know, when you're hurt, hunger, but those kinds of automatic things like that aren't enough to give you any kind of direction in life. 
whatever direction you have, whatever shapes your action, is going to be more than just you know, some kind of automatic urges that people have. It's going to be based on your thinking, based on your understanding of the world, based on your understanding of uh, what a human being can do and what kind of lives are available to human beings and then how to get them. Um, so if you take the Hobbesian kind of view, it's just, you know, people automatically want certain things like to be victorious over others and have a lot of food and money. And so they're going to come into conflict about these things. But that's, uh, it's not true that we automatically want things. We don't even automatically know what things there are to want. That requires uh, a kind of creative thinking that just doesn't automatically happen. And someone needs to come up with and originate all of these goals. Now, it's true that a lot of people don't do that work. They live, as Rand puts it in the Fountain Head, secondhand. They just see what other people have and they want that and they see the kind of lives other people have and they try to ape them without thinking about um, what makes those lives possible and worthwhile. And they lead a kind of cargo cult of a life. That is, you know, doing the trappings of what other people do, hoping it'll bring them the meaning uh, that they don't have. But those are the non-valuing people. Those are people who aren't out for themselves. They don't even have a sense of self. They don't know what they want. They don't have any direction in life. They're, they're lost and at sea, and it doesn't make them happy. These are the people, again, who don't value, who aren't really about anything. They're either just totally adrift or else they're um, driven by insecurity and hatred for the people who seem to be doing better than them. And neither of those is a formula for happiness. So what we need ethics for is not to constrain some kind of ravenous beast inside of us, but to give us something to aim at because uh, otherwise we'll be aimless. To give us something to aim at that... Uh, can be a satisfactory life for ourselves, a life that makes sense, a life that of creating and enjoying values. Because again, we don't automatically have any aim like that. And so the standard that she defines, she refers to a man, as man's life or sometimes man's life qua man. And I think there's been a lot of confusion over what she means by that. And so some people will equate it, say, with longevity. So it's how do you have the most years on earth? Uh, and others will put it as, you know, it's survival plus some other things that Rand happens to think are nice. And so it's, you know, man's survival qua Jung Galt. And you argue, you yeah, uh, um, but you argue that neither of these accurately captures her meaning. Yeah, I, I think that's right. There's what's happened with professional philosophers who've, who've looked at this is they they tend to look at it with the assumption that uh, they know what all the possibilities are and this weird Russian author didn't. Um, I, I'm thinking of uh, philosophers, particularly with an Aristotelian background, who, who've looked at this. And so they tend to want to put her in one of the boxes that philosophers already recognize. And the, the boxes that philosophers already recognize are that you have some end that's valuable in itself 
and you're trying or uh, sorry, you have some end that's good for you, but in itself, like people think pleasure is this way or maybe longevity is this way. And the virtues and the content of ethics are just advice on how to maximize that thing. There's some bottom line that's really what you're after. And the contents of ethics is just how to maximize that bottom line. That's what's called an instrumentalist approach. And uh, people, some people see Rand that way. Uh, more often, they notice that she doesn't seem to hold that. And so they want to push her into an Aristotelian position where the ultimate goal isn't something that's a result of the virtues and the content of ethics. Rather, it's just leading the kind of life that's moral. And so they, ch they take man's life to mean uh, living what Aristotle called living well or eudaimonia, a life of virtue. And they um, think that this is something that is just noble or intrinsically valuable or good for us and we should try to achieve this. Um, Uh, in the way that Aristotle and, and subsequent Aristotelians have thought. So there's a, a, a tendency to want to put Rand into one of these two boxes. I call those boxes uh, egoistic consequentialists, the ones who are about maximizing some bottom line, and virtue is just a means to do that. Or on the other hand, eudaimonists, which is the word for the Aristotelian type of ethical theory. But what I think Rand saw that the tradition on this hasn't seen I think this is part of what's distinct about her ethics, is that the content of a human life, or the content of any life, really, is made up by the essential means to the sustenance of that life. So life is a process of keeping itself going. She defined it as a process of self-sustaining, self-generated action. And a human life is a process made up of the kind of action that it takes to keep a human being alive across a human lifespan. Um, but So all the contents of ethics are there because in Ranfew, they're the things that human beings need to survive reliably across a human lifespan. But that doesn't mean that the goal is just survival across the lifespan because what it is to be alive, what it is to be surviving is to be engaged in those very activities that make life possible. So I think the way to think about it is that a human life is a certain sort of self-sustaining whole. It's a life made up of values and virtue, a constellation of values and virtues that keeps itself going. All lives are like that, animal lives as well, uh, but there's only a certain constellation that will work, a certain type of constellation that will work for a human being. And unlike animals, which automatically do and pursue the things they need, human beings need to do it by choice, and we need to come up with for ourselves the particular constellation that will be our lives, that will be our set of self-sustaining values. And what ethics for Rand does is gives you an abstract specification of what that is for a human being. She's not going to tell you what specific values, what job, what wife, what, uh, what friends, what sports or whatever to be into. But she's going to say that a human life is one that has these kinds of features. Only these kinds of features will do. And a life that doesn't have these 
will be one that's not really working to sustain itself. It will be one that's frustrated, that's missing something, that therefore is not um, such that if you're living it, the fact that you survive rather than perish is an accident. Yeah, and so just to make that a little concrete, so she identifies kind of three major values and and seven major virtues. And so on the value side, she has reason, purpose, and self-esteem. And the virtues, I won't go through all of them, but things like rationality, independence, productiveness, pride. Um, Since we can't go into all of that, I'll I'll ask you, what, what is your favorite virtue and you can't say rationality? Um productiveness because I think it's the most overlooked so most philosophers in one way or another recognize that rationality is a good thing they might have a strange or different view of it but most of the major philosophers uh, in one way or another recognize that rationality is a good thing very few do with pride but some do like Aristotle but productiveness is much rarer and particularly Rand's view of productiveness is is really unique. And I think it's it's what you need to add to Aristotle's picture of a good life to to get nearer to Rand. I think you know there's also the integration of it that gives you her her full picture. But the idea that a good life is a life that earns its keep. It's a life in which you are creating values. You're creating things that are good because they enable you to go on as someone who's creating these things. And, of course, these are things that you create, you come up with and create by your reasoning. But it's an important part of it that to really value something, to really care about it, to really appreciate it, to have it be valuable to you requires that you go out and make it. If you don't have that, if you're not pursuing realizing your values in action they're just um pretenses things you say you value now i'm veering into integrity but it's this element of productiveness in Ransom, which is really crucial it's one of the three central values that i think makes the kind of life that she sees as the human life quite different from previous philosophical ideals of the human life yeah, one of these days we'll have to do a podcast just on productiveness and because I think it's so misunderstood. And like you said, it really does capture something quite unique in her, in her conception of a moral and happy life. But um, in her remaining time, I wanted to turn to altruism and egoism. And uh, there's really two questions that I want to raise that you bring out, I think, quite in a very clarifying way in your piece. And so one is the issue that Rand's critics often dismiss her conception of altruism as attacking a straw man. And on the other hand, supporters often take her embrace of the term selfishness as undermining her own case by trying to reclaim a tainted word. And so I wonder if you can just give a flavor of what you think about those claims. Well, this is that what she says about altruism is attacking the straw man is something I've noticed in a lot of ethics textbook presentations of her. 
So she says altruism is the morality of self-sacrifice that demands that you sacrifice, that thinks that your sacrificing is uh, your sole duty, your main the source of your value. And because philosophers don't themselves typically put it that way, it seems to them, uh, philosophy professors and so forth, like something people don't hold. And of course, they can think of counterexamples to it that you know, there are good reasons not to hold that view. But in popular presentations of morality, you see that all the time. And particularly if you look, I give some examples in the book uh, of uh, cases when people are trying to say rally people behind moral platitudes. You'll get statements like, you know, uh, the measure of a man's character uh, is the extent to which he'll give of himself for others. Right. That's just saying what makes you good. Not one good thing about you, but what makes you good is giving up uh, for other people. And there are just a lot of examples of this in, in popular moral discourse. And then if you look at the – I don't want to do this here. But if you look at the main uh, moral theories in the history of philosophy and you don't look at the formulations that they use, but you kind of go below the surface of what are they working, what's the logic of this theory, uh, I think you find a lot of the same ideas. In particular, I think you find the idea – that there's something intrinsically right or essential to morality about sacrificing or harming yourself, or at least being willing to do so. And that's, again, not always on the surface, but I think it's a premise that's driving, certainly it's driving uh, Kant's ethics, and Kant, I think, has really uh, set the stage for how people think about ethics. Well, let me, let me ask one kind of follow-up there. Um, aside from politics, like, it, it, what are... Do you think common examples where we really see people acting altruistically in this self-sacrificial sense? Because sometimes I wonder how obvious that is when people hear her definition of altruism. Well, I think a lot of people – so let me give an example that, that was um, – I just read about the other day that uh, really struck me. There's a, a blog by a, uh, a former Muslim girl uh, or young woman, I guess, who uh, is just, you know, she's recently in the last year or so told her parents uh, she she's now at the, towards the end of university. And even while she was living with her parents in high school or middle school, whenever it was, she gradually stopped uh, believing in the religion. And now she's been away for several years and. Uh, she's finally decided to come out of the closet and tell her parents and uh, and her her family. And she got met with uh, just horrible scorn, uh, all kinds of abuse, particularly a lot of people telling her, her, her siblings telling her, how can you be so selfish? Well, you know what this is going to do to mom. Why can't you just pretend everybody pretends to believe things they don't just so that people can get along? Uh, it's awful what you're doing to the family. Think of our reputations. And I've known a lot of people who on larger or smaller scales have uh, have faced this kind of thing, whether it's about giving up a, a religion or changing their mind about something or just going a different direction in life than what was expected of them. This uh, happens often, and people are put down for... Uh, doing what they think is necessary for them to be happy and successful and for not giving it up for other people. Okay, so um, 
then let's turn to the issue of selfishness and wh- why she thinks it's important to reclaim that term. I think there are two aspects to it. Uh, one of them is in common with Aristotle, and the other is really distinctive to her. Uh, so think about the ordinary meaning of selfish. Think of what what it means when you call Bernie Madoff or the character Peter Keating, let's stick with Bernie Madoff, selfish. Uh, the guy is obviously contemptible. He's unjust. He's a crook. He's done all kinds of awful things. But that's not what you're saying, or it's not all you're saying when you're saying that he's selfish. Included in describing that as selfish is a certain diagnosis of, of the evil. What's evil about it is that he pursued what he thought was good for him rather than giving up what was good for him as he ought to have. But to think that's what's wrong with Bernie Madoff is to endorse the view that stealing from your friends is what's good for you. It's to say, boy, I'd be better off if I had a life like Bernie Madoff's of cheating everyone I know and being a scoundrel and a liar and not having any genuine relationships and just grabbing whatever seems expedient and not thinking ahead. I'd be better off that way, but I'm going to forgo that for the sake of other people. And that is really... um, destructive to your sense of yourself, to your sense of what is good for you. And moreover, it makes it feel like you're, you're losing out. It demotivates you not to act like Bernie Madoff, to believe that you're losing out by not doing that, as though you'd somehow be better off if you were like him. And so Aristotle makes the point that although nobody would call the virtuous man selfish, people think of selfish people as like Bernie Madoff, if you really understand what things are worth having in life and what yourself really is, you would understand that a truly virtuous person is more selfish than anyone else because he's really interested in figuring out what's truly best and what's truly himself and getting those best things for himself. And I think that same kind of idea is in Ayn Rand. Uh, when you think about particularly earlier Ayn Rand, when you think about her notes for the Fountainhead, Uh, about what it is that makes Rourke selfish and about what's so unselfish about the ordinary ways people live when they don't think about what would really be best for themselves but just settle for what people ordinarily do. And they don't think about what they really are. So there's no thought about what's really good and who am I really and what would best advance my interests. Instead, uh... We think about the people who we, we, we think that the people who are really advancing their interests and concerned with who they are are these people like Bernie Madoff, and that forecloses the whole area of thought about what should I do, what would be worth doing, what kind of life can I have for myself. In place of that, we're given this ridiculous image that Bernie Madoff is what's good for me, and we're told, okay, shy away from that. Don't think too much or worry too much about what's good for you. Just worry about avoiding being Bernie Madoff. So that's one part of it. And that's the part of it that I think she shares with Aristotle, who does have a really interesting chapter, and I discuss it a bit in in the book and in another paper of mine, where he talks about selfishness. But there's another element that's distinctive to Rand here, which is that Aristotle thinks that no virtuous person would really be called selfish. 
But Rand thinks, no, in fact, the word selfish is applied not only to people like Bernie Madoff, but to virtuous people. And it's used to damn them for the traits that are their virtues. So if you think of somebody like um, John D. Rockefeller or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, uh, somebody who uh, has lived the kind of life that Rand uh, um, valorizes, has thought about what they want out of life, has created a new and interesting and ambitious life project based around something they love and want to achieve for themselves. And it's a genuine value and they've striven tirelessly to achieve it and they have achieved it and they've made their lives wonderful and great in the process and particularly if it's something that they made a lot of money doing. And they've really uh, pursued and strained every nerve and and skipped, you know, uh, vacations and holidays and, and weren't just an ordinary, jovial, everyday kind of guy because they were so driven in pursuit of this vision, be it a new type of metal or a computer on every desk or whatever it might be, and has achieved this on a grand scale and has become very rich doing it. Those people are derided, put down as selfish. They're told they ought to give something back. And now, of course, we have Bill Gates giving something back. They are um, arrested, no, not literally arrested in Gates' case, but have had their companies, the things that they've spent their lives building, just torn up and destroyed in front of them, as happened with Standard Oil and, and happened with Microsoft. Uh, and they're accused in the process of being selfish. We're doing it because we can't let these selfish people uh, uh, continue unfettered pursuing their selfishness. We have legal shackles brought on them. We have moral scorn heaped on them. Nobody ever appreciated Bill Gates as a moral hero for building Microsoft. Uh, Steve Jobs, maybe a little bit more, but still it was, he was seen as aesthetically good, not as moral, not as noble. Um, and all of these people were put down as selfish. So in addition to people not, the, the concept of selfishness blocking you off, making it harder to appreciate that this kind of life is really best for you. It also then becomes a smear, a slander to tar the people who most fully embody this life, to put them down, to demean them, to say that they're the same thing as Bernie Madoff. And that is a horror. That is at the level of a racial slur, except a million times worse, because racial slurs, as awful as they are, and as terrible and as, as combined with a history of violence as they are, they are damning people for traits that have no moral significance. This is worse because it's damning people for traits that are actually virtues, that are actually good. And this is why she was so adamant about uh, standing up for selfishness. Because it's not just a matter of this one word has a bad rap. This word means, has a connotation of evil, because our whole way of thinking about the self and about the role of the self in life uh, and about what you should be aiming at in life is, from her point of view, and I think she's right, perverted and twisted. And this word's negative meaning is a manifestation of that deep, deep, pernicious element in human thinking. So that any other word we might try to replace it with, self-actualization or self-this or self-that, would in a generation or so acquire this same nasty meaning. Because people think that their selves are a sewer and that to uh, try to make the best life for yourself would be to uh, 
be Bernie Madoff rather than Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Hank Reardon. So as we wrap up, I'm curious um, what you learned or what surprised you while working on this book. That's a good question. The, the things that most did, uh, not all of them, but the things that most did were in the political commentary chapter. Uh, I took over that chapter, uh, or anyway, I signed on to finish it uh, when John Lewis passed away. I had had the idea early on when Alan and I were talking about the book that there uh, needed to be a, a chapter on this, trying to get an overview uh about what it was that Ram was doing in all of these articles uh, commenting on politics and if there were any trends or you know interesting issues of what she thought was most important at what times. And uh, we tried to get a few different people to write it. Everybody was, uh, you know, it was an intimidating task. And John Lewis took it on and he did a, a really good job and he created a, a first draft of it. But um, then he passed away and, and I was trying to finish it for him and it became clear for various reasons having to do with the rest of the book that we needed an even more ambitious version of the chapter so I signed on to do it and I just learned a lot in that process because I hadn't really studied all of these historical periods and episodes and so what I got from doing that is a sense of Rand's view of the narrative of the 20th century and uh, I hadn't really had that before and I hadn't really had any other narrative of it um, it's a little hard to summarize, but I'll I'll mention two, three highlights just to pique people's interest in that chapter. Um, one is, you know, she talks a lot in her early works about collectivism, but she thought that the perspective the world had on collectivism before and after World War II were very different. So early on, she thought collectivism was an ideal that people were striving towards. It was a false ideal, but it was regarded as an ideal nonetheless. And she thought that World War II and the aftermath of that just totally discredited that ideal. People were no longer ideological crusading collectivists. And there were a few, but by and large, that was dead. And because of that, you had a period in the 50s and the 60s, and especially the 60s, of... Um, what Rand called anti-ideology. People on both the right and the left, for various reasons, were afraid to admit what they stood for, what it was that they were proceeding towards. People on the left were afraid because it really was, still they were moving towards collectivism, and it was revealed what the end of that road was. It was Stalin and Hitler. Uh, people on the right, because capitalism is selfish and they were afraid to face up to that fact, so you had a situation where everybody in politics, but particularly the left in the early 60s, was trying to obscure the issues. And she just has a very interesting perspective on what the main events were there, what the role of the Kennedy administration was, uh, why the 1964 election and particularly Goldwater's failure to name this fact and to, to um, fight this anti-ideology, this attempt to obscure issues. Uh, how that was a major turning point for the nation. And uh, she has a kind of causal narrative about how all the main events of the mid-60s and early 70s uh, come out of this trend. And in, particularly, in particular, how the 64 election just unleashes a torrent of awfulness of different sorts. Uh, and 
how that is largely stemmed by the 1972 election, which is a kind of backlash against what's gotten unleashed in the interim. And, you know, there's uh, a lot else in this story about what was happening across the, the, the century. But I just didn't have that perspective on the century at all. And I didn't really have a sense of I knew she hated this politician and liked that one a bit better and thought this policy was a disaster. But I didn't have a sense of the overall narrative and how she approached these issues. Uh, certainly not the sense I have now uh, before working on that chapter. Well, I uh, just want to reiterate, I think like this book is just such an invaluable resource. Certainly, I hope it will be helpful and influential to other intellectuals, but certainly for anybody who's interested in her philosophy, uh, I, I, as I've said uh, uh, before to people outside this podcast, um, it would have saved me, I think, years on understanding points. So uh, I, I definitely hope that you see a lot of success with it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.